This is African News of America. Hello and welcome to African News Tonight. Thank you for joining us. I'm Carol Van Dam, and here's what's coming up. One has to recognize that these guys are popular. In fact, in many cases, more popular than the regimes that came before them. And so we have to deal with the reality of the situation, look at our national interests, and look at what people in the region are looking for. That was former U.S. Special Envoy to the Sahel, J. Peter Pham, warning that when confronting Russia's expanding influence in West Africa, the U.S. must realize that military rulers are popular among a significant number of citizens. Also, Kenya and Haiti sign a deal to deploy police to lead a U.N.-backed mission in the Caribbean nation. And Chad's prime minister says his country has a role in building stability in the Sahel. All this and more coming up on Africa News Tonight. Kenya and Haiti sign an agreement today to deploy police from the East African country to lead a United Nations-backed mission in the gang-plagued Caribbean nation. Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry is in Nairobi. Kenyan President William Ruto said he and the Haitian Prime Minister discussed the steps needed to, in his words, enable the fast tracking of the deployment. However, it was not immediately clear whether the deal would counter a Kenyan court ruling in January that it should not go forward. Journalist Mohamed Youssef is in Nairobi. He spoke with some Kenyans about the planned mission to Haiti. Haiti's Prime Minister Ariel Henry is in Kenya to meet with Kenyan President William Ruto. According to Henry's office, the Prime Minister will meet Kenyan leaders and security officials to discuss and finalize the details of the Kenyan-led multinational security support. Kenya has agreed to deploy 1,000 police officers to help Haiti restore peace and security. However, the planned deployment has run into legal challenges and a Kenyan court in January ruled it's illegal that the president and his National Security Council have no authority to send troops to Haiti or any other country. Many Kenyans have expressed concerns about the deployment and the safety of the officers who may be sent to Haiti. Uh, the constitution does not, does not have a, a, a lineup for deployment of police officers or rather what they would do, what court says, they would do what, what is there provided in the constitution is to, is to send the defense forces. That's what we have been seeing uh, being sent to, to other countries to bring peace into those countries. But I think uh, whatever court said, I think there's, there's something in it. There's something in it. There, there, there should be a laid down structures and procedures to be followed to make sure the Kenyan troops are, are, are very, uh, Kenyan police officers are safe wherever they are and what are the securities that Haitian, uh, uh, Haitian government is putting. Yeah. Don't know. When we see those tear gas and uh, the rungus and uh, some guns, we run away. But those gangsters will not run away. They will fight. So unless we want to equip our police with enough equipment and retrain them to deal with such gangsters is when we can send them. But sending them now, these policemen I see around who cannot even deal with some few people in Kondele, you want to send them to Haiti, let them not try. Let that prime minister go back empty-handed. The Caribbean nation is currently facing a significant challenge from violent gangs who have taken control much of the city and vowed to overthrow the government. The Prime Minister hopes his visit will expedite the deployment and Kenyan police officers will join him to restore normalcy to his country. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi.
United Nations investigators warn an alarming rise in violence and human rights violations threaten prospects for a durable peace in South Sudan, which could impede free and fair elections there in December. Members of the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan submitted its latest report today to the UN Human Rights Council. A top government official sharply criticized the report's findings. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Members of the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan say much remains to be done before elections planned for later this year. While South Sudan is coming to the end of a transitional political process, the Commission notes the drafting of a new permanent constitution has not started. Commission member Barney Afako says entrenched impunity is fueling armed conflict, repression, corruption, and human rights violations, which complicate efforts to hold free and fair elections. Last April, we named senior officials responsible for serious crimes including extrajudicial killings, torture, rape, and sexual violence. All of them retained their positions, including the Governor of Unity State and the Koch County Commissioner. These two individuals enjoy impunity and have continued to instigate serious violence and violations. Afako says children are recruited into the army and militias, while armed cattle keepers encroach upon and grab the land of farmers. He says the commission has documented cases of young girls and women who have been abducted and held as sexual slaves. He says many have testified being regularly beaten, raped, and threatened with death. The scale, severity, and violence associated with abductions is worsening. These attacks are well planned, Although authorities were often well aware of them, they claimed to be powerless to stop them. Instead, authorities have negotiated ransoms and encouraged families to pay off abductors. We believe that this can only incentivize further abductions. The Commission calls on South Sudan's government to urgently establish transitional justice institutions and allow the country's political process to operate meaningfully and legitimately. South Sudan's Minister of Justice and Constitutional Affairs, Ruben Madolarol, calls the commission report deplorable. He says it does not consider the actions the government has taken to improve security. He says the description of widespread sexual and gender-based violence against women and girls is misleading and meant to tarnish the image of the country. The South Sudan government also has threatened to end the mandate of the UN Human Rights Commission in South Sudan. Michael Makoe Luth, the Minister of Information and Telecommunications, told journalists the government will not extend the commission's mandate unless it accepts new conditions. He said the commission must give the names of individuals and organizations accused of rights violations to the government. Also, the commission must agree to only monitor and report rights violations, and the government and the UN mission in South Sudan will handle all investigations. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. UN Human Rights Commission Chairperson Yasmin Sukkah said her team presented the report's findings to government officials during a recent visit to South Sudan and requested feedback. She also told VOA that the commission provides the government with the names of suspected perpetrators, but expressed frustration over the government's failure to take action against those individuals. Regarding regarding evidence sharing, Sukkah mentioned that the commission must preserve evidence for a future hybrid court, as outlined in South Sudan's peace agreement.
Chad's Prime Minister Sukse Mosra has said he's committed to strengthening the country's institutions as a priority for his new administration. A former opposition leader, Mosra was appointed to his role at the beginning of the year after his return from exile in the United States. Yesterday, Chad authorities said opposition politician Yaya Dilo was killed during an exchange of gunfire with security forces after what the government said was an opposition attack on security facilities. Prime Minister Masra says the incident should be seen as an opportunity for Chadians to work toward unity. Masra was here in VOA's Washington headquarters yesterday, and he spoke with VOA's Jackson Mbunganye. In this excerpt, Masra speaks about the role Chad plays in building stability in the Sahel, and about his government's vision for the future. I think there is no hazard here. Our country, Chad, is the geographic center of Africa is in Chad, mm. in the southern part of Chad. The oldest man discovered in the world is in Chad, Tumai. So what we offer to the world is our humanity, despite the fact that we have development challenges. And this is the role that Chad is playing this is the role that we intend to play in the Sahel region and above. I was mentioning the fact that despite the, the very difficult uh, situation in Sudan, we kept our borders open to make sure that we can welcome our brothers and sisters who are flying, you know, who are leaving their countries, going away because they are seeking home. Do you offer them home? More than 1.5 million refugees. 60% of the refugees of the Sahel are there in Chad, which shows, I think, our humanity. People over everything. Mm. But now, because we stood up with dignity, we need also a support of our, our friends, friends of Chad, friends of the Chadian people, etc. This is on the humanitarian side. But we intend also to continue to play our role on security side, you know, to continue to transform our army, our security forces, and this is for us a public investment that we are bringing on the table. Last but not least, we need to make sure that we move our country for, from a one-legged one kind of country to a two-legged country, where basically the question of security, we focus on that 100%, but also the question of development. development yeah. You know, Because a country is like a bird. If you are an eagle, and you want to go further unless you have your two wings mm. you are not going to go right, further right. and a human being like you and me you can't choose between your left leg and your right one mm. the left one is security the left the the, the left one is the right uh, one is uh, development yes mm. it's development mm. and development goes hand in hand with democracy mm. because this is where people can choose the leaders and they can decide that they will appoint only servant leaders so this is the new chart we are trying to build and this is why we are asking the international community and our friends internationally to help us. We are not asking, we are not begging. We are saying we stood up with dignity mm. and now we want people to come and help we'll us. Partner with and you. we know mm. our vision is clear. That was Chad Prime Minister Sukse Mosra. He was speaking here at our Washington studios with my colleague Jackson Mvunganye.
You're listening to Africa News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please visit voaafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. U.S. President Joe Biden says a temporary ceasefire in Gaza would ease strained relationships with Israel's neighbors and jumpstart a process for Palestinians to have their own state. Since the war broke out in October, the United States has been trying to promote steps toward creating a Palestinian state as part of a broader Middle East deal that would include Saudi Arabia and other Arab states officially normalizing relations with Israel. My Rob Zanzine, an Israeli-American senior analyst at the International Crisis Group, spoke with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El Shanawi about the prospects of U.S. success in pushing for this as the final settlement of the conflict. Well, I mean, the Biden administration came into power not wanting to deal with Israel-Palestine and not wanting to deal with the Middle East, and it got roped into it and very dramatically. And now that Biden is in his final year and in a campaign election year, he has a very clear objective of trying to create this grand design that would include Saudi Arabia, normalization with Israel, deflecting against Iran, and his kind of grander strategy of uh, dealing with the growing uh, power of China. So he has his own interest. Uh, specifically now in pushing what we're looking at is this Biden doctrine to, you know, first start with a ceasefire and then push for some kind of restructuring of the Palestinian Authority to go into Gaza. And there's several steps to this process. It's it's possible the U.S. does have a lot of leverage. It has a lot of power. It is possible to move some, some of this process forward. But of course, when it comes to the, the two-state solution and the Israel-Palestine crisis, you know, you have years and years of Israel acting with impunity and the U.S. support supporting Israel uh, in a way that makes it very difficult to see that happening anytime soon. Maybe it could happen down the line with constant U.S. commitment and pressure, which is something that I don't see happening, neither with a Biden administration second term or certainly not with a Republican or Trump administration. So it's hard for me to see that this process will actually succeed right now, but it doesn't mean that it's not possible if the right actors were involved and if the right pressure was put. 99 members of the 120 Israeli lawmakers have voted to back Prime Minister Netanyahu's rejection of any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state, as international calls have grown for the revival of Palestinian statehood negotiations. Israeli National Security Advisor indicated that Israel would not accept any deal between the United States and Saudi Arabia for a Palestinian state. Then what's next? I don't know what's next, but what I do know is that Israel Israel has in action for years under Netanyahu, but also under other governments, uh, including the very temporary government that we had a little over a year ago, that when Netanyahu was ousted, and, and all of these governments have had a policy of settlement expansion, of deepening occupation, and of rejection of a Palestinian state. The closest we ever got was under Rabin during the Oslo process, which of course also had a lot of flaws and problems that led us to where we are today. But you know, Israel is even less in a position in terms of the public and the society of going to some kind of political process with the Palestinians because of October 7th, because of the trauma, because of the fears. So it would be very difficult, I think, for Israelis to, even if they manage to have elections and vote out Netanyahu, to have a leader that would be 
willing to move towards Palestinian statehood. The Palestinian side requires leadership, political renewal. There needs to be some kind of level of removing Israeli control of how Palestinians are able to choose their leaders and organize. And of course, the PA and the PLO have their own issues that they would have to resolve. So this would be a very long process. So it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that there aren't necessarily Israeli leaders that could come along and at least play along a little bit more with this process, much more than Netanyahu and his far-right coalition have. But Mirav, if majority of the Israeli public is against a two-state solution, what's their alternative? I don't think they have a good alternative except for what the far right has been basically determining and, and the reality that we're seeing on the ground, which is one Jewish state that's an apartheid state that is a Jewish supremacist state. That's the, you know, the reality that we have on the ground uh, that's only getting worse. And if you ask most Israelis, they won't necessarily support that, but they aren't, as you said, they aren't really supporting a two-state solution either. So they, I don't think they really are, are fully thinking through the alternatives and what the best option for them is. They just right now are in a very defensive mode where they are simply not willing to think about, you know, giving Palestinians something right after October 7th. That is the mindset. But if you push a lot of Israelis to the wall, they'll still say that that's probably the best way to go about it. I think Palestinians as well. So again, the question is, what are the sacrifices that would be willing to be made? How long this kind of process would take? And which actors from the outside would pressure for it? That was Myrav Zanzain, an Israeli-American senior analyst at the International Crisis Group, speaking with my colleague Mohammed El-Shanawi. U.S. officials are engaged in a flurry of diplomatic efforts publicly and privately in West Africa, looking for ways to partner with military governments in an area where violence by Islamist extremists is on the rise and Russian influence is expanding. Officials have struggled to clarify just what that partnership would look like and are restricted by U.S. laws on military support following military takeovers in Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso. J. Peter Pham, former U.S. Special Envoy for the Sahel region, tells me that the U.S. has to do more than just push for free elections. I think we're, recogn- we're beginning to recognize what people like me have been arguing for some time, which is that, look, one doesn't have to condone a coup, and one doesn't, to recognize that they often, in some cases, do respond to an underlying problem that existed. Just because it was a guy in uniform who took over and did it extra constitution doesn't mean that what came before was a Jeffersonian democracy or even a democracy first. Secondly, the fact is we have to acknowledge the reality. The reality is that tens of thousands, in the case of Mali, even millions of people have gone to the streets to demonstrate in support of the military takeovers. Now, again, without justifying them, without condoning them, one has to recognize that these guys are popular. In fact, in many cases, more popular than the regimes that came before them. And so we have to deal with the reality of the situation, look at our national interests, and look at what people in the region are looking for. You know, there's a famous saying that says, you know, foolish consistency you know, shows, you know, basically as a hobgoblin of small minds. And I think that this is where we have to look at each case individually. And sanctions, tough talk, that hasn't worked. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Mali Fee recently visited Niamey, Niger's capital. 
She said we made the choices as stark and clear as we could. A lot of countries, including the U.S., are worried that these countries are tilting in the Sahel, tilting toward Russia. What do you know about that? Well, I would say, you know, in many cases, and I use this metaphor speaking to another journalist, you can't be a doctor that diagnoses an ailment and refuses to write a script for the medication needed. If you won't do write the script, don't be surprised if the patient goes on to someone else who gives them something, even if it's not a good remedy. And I think that's what we have to look at. What are these regimes looking for? They're looking for security assistance. They're looking to buy weapons. You know, we're not going to provide them. I'm not saying we should in every single case. We have to look at each case individually. Then don't be surprised that when Russia offers them what is essentially a regime survival kit, if you will, of military assistance, security, advice, in some cases even mercenaries, that they will go for that. You you point out the the analogy. Prescription, as far as the U.S. is concerned, won't be giving them weapons. So what is the alternative? I I think that we should not rule anything out. In some cases, it is. When you're in the case of, you know, Burkina Faso, where half the country is overrun by jihadist terrorists, you know, I'm not sure, you know, it's very easy to sit from a distance and say your first priority should be organizing a timetable for elections. How do you hold elections when half the country is overrun? Anyway, so I think we have to be a little more pragmatic and we shouldn't be scoring self goals. I'm not condoning coups, but I'm saying we have to be, we have to look at the bigger picture and not always default to certain uh, cliches. That is J. Peter Pham, former U.S. ambassador and special envoy for Africa's Sahel region and a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. He was speaking with me here in Washington. A major conference on financing Africa's energy transition is underway in Nairobi, Kenya. It is supported by Energy Catalyst, an Innovate UK program co-founded by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and other UK departments to accelerate the innovation needed to enhance Africa's energy transition. VOA's Ruben Chama spoke with Christopher Horner, founder and chief executive of PowerHive, a pioneering clean energy enterprise that enables electricity access to rural and remote communities in Africa. PowerHive is uh, an energy company based exclusively on renewable energy and electric mobility. We build energy infrastructure in Africa that empowers transport and the energy transition for people that don't have access to electricity. The problem is basically either the alternative energy sources are dirty and expensive or not available at all. And so with a growing population on the continent, there's the ability for the population here to leapfrog some of the other traditional technology to renewable energy and electric mobility more quickly than others in global north. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing innovation and entrepreneurship in the clean energy sector, especially in Africa? The main challenge, I would say, is access to affordable capital on the one hand, and also educating the local communities about some of the benefits of of renewable energy and uh, electric mobility. We've had a pretty good run there on that front. We've had a lot of uptake of our product at PowerHive, offering the Spark electric motorcycle. Both have uh, seen tremendous success, mainly because we've taken our time. We've taken our time basically introducing it to the market. The market has adopted it quite well. They're telling their friends about it. They're telling their friends about how how affordable our solution is. And frankly speaking, that's really what's helped uh, accelerate our growth so far. 
you also spoke a little bit about mini grids. Can you shed some light about your work around mini grids? Sure. In fact, we're an energy company. We were the first company in Kenya to be privately licensed, and the idea was to actually create mini grids. And we have created several mini grids that power thousands of households in Kenya. And what's amazing about the mini grid is it's actually much, much cheaper and more reliable than alternative sources of electricity. That's really where we started was actually building mini grids, and then we realized that because we are so focused on affordability, we put energy efficient light bulbs, and we put all sorts of technology in the households that have allowed our customers to enjoy low cost power. It also meant that the bills and the revenue was really low, so we had to think about other ways to sell energy. To our customers, which is why we started investing in electric motorcycles and. That was Christopher Horner, founder of Powerhive, a clean energy enterprise, speaking with reporter Ruben Chama from Nairobi. And that wraps it up for this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our Africa News website, voaafrica.com. Thanks for choosing the Voice of America.